Konbanwa, it's Zaklin Michichi. I'm so popular. Today we are talking about terrorism and Brett Easton Ellis's Glamorama with a very special guest. Who are you? I'm Yana um, with a J. Hi, Yana with a J. What are you doing? Um, just sitting here day drinking, um, thinking about just terrorism and the casual things. Yeah, as you do. And uh, why do you follow me? Uh, I think you followed me first, actually. And, oh, okay. then, <laughs> and then I followed you back. So that's, that's why I follow you. But um, yeah. I wonder what it was that initiated the Twitter relationship. Because I really think that you are one of Twitter's best It Girl posters. Like, every oh, take. You. Gorgeous takes. Beautiful, pristine <laughs> takes. I, uh... I find it refreshing to have a uh, face-doxed young woman, you know, singing the (laughs) beautiful song of Twitter. So I'm really happy to have you on. Well, thank you. Um, I think it was actually the face reveal that did it. I think that's why you followed me. Oh, yeah. I like like gained like 200 followers overnight. It was like the greatest moment of my life. (laughs) (laughs) I like, I find that it's very scary for a lot of people to put their face and their name on their Twitter. It's kind of an art to be so bold as to do it that's true yeah but then I like thought about it and I was like well you know it's not like I'm very young I don't really have anything to lose I might as well uh, become you know a right-wing Twitter person why not yeah why not like the only thing I have to lose is my visa which is actually very high stakes but (laughs) (laughs) it's fine as we were talking like nobody really listens to podcasts as long as you're you know just not actually tweeting it, it's fine. No one's gonna know. You can do Yeah, exactly. The only people to. who are gonna like even have the knowledge of what I'm saying here are people who like wanna hear me say it. So exactly. but you know, like it can happen. People get really obsessed, I think, like once you cross a certain border and they'll just actually go and dig through all of your content to find all the horrible things <sighs> you've said. Yeah, that's true. I was um, kind of scared about that. I'm um, especially like, because I never linked it to my Instagram or, or anything. And I don't think the people I know in real life, like most people don't know about my Twitter. Mm-hmm. So I am kind of a little bit scared of them finding out about it. But then, you know, it's like, well, if you don't, you know, if you don't agree with my opinions, then maybe we shouldn't be friends. It's yeah, not exactly. like I'm to lose. So I'll find. Yeah, I mean, and uh, your boldness in posting is, I think, like what <laughs> makes you also bold for a faux dropping out of art school. <laughs> yeah, um, that's true. Yeah. Well, you know, I was thinking about it. Like, if I do go back to art school, I would have to take that out of my bio. So maybe I won't go back. I'll just keep it there. Just, you know, have that online persona going for me. <laughs> that's literally the only thing that's keeping me in Japan is like the fact I would have to like take out the Japanese flag from my name and I'd have to delete drag queen in Japan and just be a drag queen and that sounds so morbid and depressing. <laughs> yeah, it's really boring. I agree. I think those um those are important. Vibes are important. I really I don't it. care about like drag queens lately. I've been I mean I that's a complete lie. Like, I watch Drag Race every week, and I'm obsessed with uh, everyone's behavior. But I find that just, like, the contemporary state of drag is so fucking boring that the fact that I can even excite people as a drag queen, like, just being, like, as a cross-dressing kind of, like, old guard version is a, a really sad state of the union, I think. Well, yeah, but I think it's the whole, the fact that you are kind of, like, you know, functioning as sort of the right-wing Twitter thing. And there are not a lot of drag queens there. So I think that does it for you. 
Yeah, it's like me and uh, Lady Maga. Oh, I don't think I follow her. Or oh, you should check her out. She's a she's a star. <laughs> okay, okay, that's exciting. I like. That. She just uh, went to like the Republican National Convention or like whatever it is that they do. Um, and uh, she got into an argument with like Nick Fuentes. Oh my god! Oh, I think the uh, the Red Scare girls were talking about her now. Mm-hmm. I remember yeah. something. Yeah, it's cool. And she's like just that. in this like enormous like disney princess dress and like hideous blonde wig and like really aggressive sherry pie makeup and uh the whole confrontation is just like ultra camp i love that i love that wait wasn't she wasn't she like the one asking trump questions as well or was that a different thing it could be that i'm not a a huge follower on lady (laughs) (laughs) magazine i did invite her on the podcast and she said she would come on but she hasn't replied to my messages uh, since then so Oh, it's fine. I mean, I ignore people all the time, so I think that's that's just um, how things are. Yeah. <laughs> well, speaking <laughs> of the right wing, I brought you on to talk about terrorism today, only Ooh. because you've read Glamorama, which is kind of a rare quality in people, but it's yeah, a very challenging to um, find people who are okay with chatting about terrorism. Um, well, it wouldn't be my first time, so... Um, I, I think I tweeted about it at some point, but I gave this like presentation on Columbine in high school once, and mm-hmm. everyone just kind of like, I, I guess I was I was like a star student and whatever, and people I guess didn't expect me to do anything, so they just kind of yeah. took it as like whatever, just you know her doing her little thing. So no one even questioned the fact that I was doing a presentation on Columbine. But now that I think of it, it was kind of crazy. <laughs> like, yeah, Edgelord. Yeah, I was just like my friend and I, so I did the IB in high school and whatever, and you have to like give this like little philosophical presentation at the end of your senior year. And um, my friend and I just did it on Columbine. <laughs> and we just stood there in front of the whole school, just like, you know, talking about like Tumblr um, fandoms and like the two uh, the two murderers. It was, it was really fun. Um, one of my greatest high school moments. Yeah, delightful. But, A crowning achievement. Yeah, absolutely. I completely failed that presentation. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, is that your capstone? Is that what they call that? No, 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 no. It's um, it's international baccalaureate, I think. Um, and it's it's just like stupid. So I went to international schools for most of my life, and most international schools do the IB, which is basically you have to take like eight subjects and. Um, they're like AP level and then you do like 10 exams at the end of your um, high school experience and you have to give like two presentations and write a huge essay Um, and then and yours was Columbine yeah (laughs) it takes guts I mean I think one of the I want to talk about terrorism because I think it is a phenomenon that people around our age are kind of born into experiencing and you know to a lesser degree i think you know millennials and like boomers have a lot of experience with it as well but sort of like the mass terrorism that we've grown up with is like sort of fact and just like having accepted it from 9-11 moving on i think is a really touchy subject for people and if you look at you know charlie hebdo or like the Islamic terrorism happening in Europe from uh, time to time, you'll find that there's like a lot of hesitance to opening your mouth about it because there's so many racial borders to 
being able to comment on it. Um, I actually have a fun story about a terrorist attack in London last year. So I live in London. So basically, um, last year, there was like a knife attack on one of the bridges. Um, It was like an Islamic terrorist, whatever thing. And I think two people got killed or something. And it was like really close to where my dorm was. um, And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and all the news were like reporting on it and whatever and like all the tube stations were closed because they thought that there was a bomb on like the tube whatever as well and then i texted my dad and i was like hey like there was a terrorist attack next to where i live um like just kind of like trying to get a reaction out of him and just and he was just like so what like go home like what's your problem <laughs> <laughs> he read you through yeah and i was like wow I, I was just you know i was fishing for attention i didn't get it i guess i'll just go home <laughs> Yeah, because, I mean, this is, I think, one of the conditions of, um, you know, our age group and having grown up with, like, 9-11 as fact and not event is uh, that the whole concept of, like, mass violence is, like, vaguely amusing and really distanced from us. Like, the only time I think I've ever been emotionally moved by an act of mass violence was the pole shooting, which is just because I was, like, mm-hmm. 20 years old and really aggressively devoted to my identity as a gay man. And I had to tell <laughs> everyone about my experience as a gay man. And so when polls happened, I mean, it was a tragedy, obviously, but yeah. I really clung to it because I, I felt identified with it. And that was, like, the only time I think I've ever been upset <laughs> about, like, mass violence. Like, the Christchurch shootings and, like, all of the mass violence that I, like, watched on TV in high school, like, happened, and I had virtually no feeling about it. Yeah, you just don't. Like, when you grow up watching that on TV and, like, hearing about it all the time, and then, I mean, I, I've i lived in Europe my whole life, basically, and um, there were, like, a lot of terrorist attacks in, like, France or whatever, like, a couple of years back, and it was just, like, every other month, and at some point, you just completely shut down, you just stop, like, feeling anything when that happens, you're just like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. like, 20 people got killed, that's cool, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's, like, exactly the same as uh, COVID, I mean, like, everyone started with the most extreme, ridiculous reaction to it, and then, you know, yeah. here passes four months, and now it's just the void. Yeah, no, it's insane. I was actually... Um, it was really funny. So when COVID first, oh, sorry, I was just pouring myself a drink. When COVID first started, I was um, like here in London and then I went to see the Andy Warhol exhibition at Tate with my friends. And then just out of nowhere, my dad texted me and he was like, what are you doing? And I was like, I'm in a museum. And he's like, you have to get out. You have to go home. You have to come back to Russia because they're going to like shut down all the borders and you can't stay there. And you're, they're going to, you know, like whatever, start kicking people out of the country and like whatever. It was just like this extreme thing. And then I came there, I was like, completely freaked out and then nothing. <laughs> like, and then everyone kind of calmed down and nothing really happened. And I was just like at my parents' summer house for six months, seeing absolutely no one doing absolutely nothing. And it was, you know, it was an experience. <laughs> There you go. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, our age group is extremely, like, worn down and unexposed to terrorism in a meaningful way. And I see people who are, like, 14 years older than me about, or, like, even, like, 10. Like, that's about, like, the the gap that it takes for people to strongly react to terrorism Mm -hmm. now. But it's, uh, it's kind of amusing because, like, the whole point of terrorism is to, like, create a cultural feeling and to like invoke a mood yeah. it's um and now it actually does like the exact opposite and just provokes apathy 
That's true. Yeah, absolutely. You just feel nothing. You're just like, okay. Especially like lately, all the terrorist attacks have been so like unesthetic and ugly. Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. Like there's just like no feeling to them. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's exactly right because um, I believe that terrorism is, for better or worse, a piece of art that's enacted. Because yeah. the way that you experience art is you see something, you read something, you experience it, and then you take in whatever emotion or feeling it, it gives to you. And terrorism is a really pointed and uh, simple way of creating that feeling, like, on mass. So in my mind, mm-hmm. like, good terrorism or, like, artful <laughs> terrorism <laughs> is, like, capable of... Uh, engendering a massive cultural mood on a population and like changing the course of history so like some of the most like heinous and you know memorable Mm. acts of terrorism now kind of stand as like these mammoths of art behind us that's true um it's actually i think the only way to still produce that emotion in people is to have multiple terrorist attacks in a row if that makes sense because then people start getting scared because it's like, oh, okay, there have been like five in a row. Where's the next one going to be? You know, and then people yeah. are scared and they like have a reaction to it. But when it's just like one every couple of years, you're just like, okay, what are the chances? Yeah, well, I mean, so much terrorism is like really meaningless and like whatever theme it's trying to invoke or communicate gets mm-hmm. number one blotted out by like news media who are often like obscure who was the individual behind it or like what their uh, message was like it's impossible to get like uh off of like 4chan or in any like popular news media like the you know doctrines behind the people at Christchurch or like stuff like that uh, which yeah. you know I, I i can't say that that's like a good or bad thing but you know the the messaging and like the emotional like temor of a terrorist act is completely vague now that's true yeah um I mean, um, my favorite terrorist attack of all time <laughs> is Columbine. And I think it's also uh, the most beautiful one out of all of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's just so, like, it was just so aesthetic and well thought through. Like, they really, like, thought about everything. The costumes, like, the camera angles. They did, like, a little vlog before it. It's, like, perfect. What, what, yeah. what could you possibly want from it? Yeah, I mean, um, I wanted to talk about some of our favorite acts of terror. And um, I think one of the things that makes Columbine, like, so successful as, like, a piece of art is that, like, it is really oblique and it's, like, terrorism and it's, like, effect on trying to, like, change the course of history because it's, like, yeah. so personalized to these, like, two figures. Yeah. Yeah, no, but also, okay, um, <laughs> I'm going to sound a bit crazy, but I also have this theory. I'm convinced that Columbine was like an empty ultra plot. Like, it's my little like <laughs> conspiracy theory that I really believe in because, um, okay, so one of the, one of the killers, um, Eric, he grew up, um, like his dad was like in the army and they grew, uh, he grew up like moving around the West. Whatever. And one of the bases that they lived at was the one where they did the LSD experiments. Mm-hmm. And that was around the time that he started, like, you know, like distancing himself from his friends and going a bit crazy and like turning into like the person who would later commit the shooting. So I'm convinced <laughs> that it was like a government plot. Uh huh. 
And the other thing that makes me think that is because, um, so they wrote diaries before they did the whole thing. And in one of the diary entries, he talks about how, um, so Columbine was supposed to be a bombing initially. Right. But they they failed at doing that. Like the bombs just didn't go off. So they had to go in, like start shooting people. But um, it was going to be a bombing. And in one of the diary entries, he talks about how they were going to bomb the school. And then when the police helicopters and whatever were going to arrive, they were going to steal one of the helicopters and then crash it into the Twin Towers in New York. Oh my God. If that's, if that's not like a foreshadowing, I don't know what is. Yeah, the only other thing I can think that's like so apt at foreshadowing is Glamorama. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just like, no. it's really like on the nose. You just, you just, I don't know. Ever since I found that out, I was just like, okay, it was a government plot. Like, <laughs> that's all that matters. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that is like most, uh, aesthetically like enrapturing about it is like the surviving like surveillance footage and like the imagery of the high Mm -hmm. school um so much of like the like pictorial quality of columbine like still endures and i mean before that there hadn't been like a cultural mass school shooting like it was like the first basically yeah absolutely and it still stands like i think like the fact that they had those like you know, printed t-shirts with the whatever. I think one said like natural selection, the other one revenge or something. Mm-hmm. It's just like so out there. Like they were just screaming about it. You can't help but be like sort of enamored by the whole thing. Well, this is something that people will try to prevent you from talking about because they'll, you know, say that it's disgusting that you are, you know, interested in what these people have done and that you are appraising them or you're giving them power into their into their terror by like even discussing their motivations or like what like they were doing and um I know you said that you like did some of the research for your high school project (laughs) (laughs) about like tumblr fandoms and stuff and I remember like the outrage about people who were like into serial killers like into terrorists like into school shooters (laughs) but there is like an undying American like image in that kind of violence and i think that exploring and understanding it is like crucial to you know making any progress or good thing out of it yeah no absolutely and i think for me one of the things that i always found really interesting about it so because i went i grew up going to international schools and stuff and they were mostly american just like with the culture that we had and like all most of the teachers were american whatever the whole spirit of America was just always there. Mm-hmm. So it kind of like made sense for me to like find this one thing and like, you know, get really into it because it is yeah. so American. And like the imagery and like the visuals, it's just, I don't know. Yeah, it's just yeah like the, the high school is like on this like big blank grassy hill in the middle of like mm-hmm. fuck all. Like yeah. it is this complete like, frightening brutalist object in a field and like all of this like horror happened here with like these two you know upset young men it is like absolutely like the end point of what america like looks like yeah and then like the michael is his name michael moore yeah i think like it is like the oh, yeah. bowling for Columbine thing yeah uh-huh. and like the documentary and then all the people that wrote books about it and like just, just everything is so I don't know, it just screams 90s, even though it was like 1999. It's just like such a 90s moment. And then obviously, like when I was growing up, everyone was into the 90s, you know, like mm-hmm. Nirvana was really popular and they teach you that in yeah. 2010s or whatever. It's just, yeah, it's um, also, I think, 
that the reason why Columbine suddenly became so popular again in 2010s is because of that stupid uh, Ryan Murphy show. American oh, Horror American Story. Horror Story. Yeah, I've been thinking about this, actually, because um, of that Columbine scene in the first season. Mm-hmm. And the fact that, like, Ryan Murphy was able to put that show on mass network TV and, like, just willingly yeah. depict a brutal, like, school slaying is so satanic. It absolutely is. I mean, the whole show is just, you know, very, um, just screams um, QAnon and all that, but... But just Ryan Murphy the, is, like, literally, like, an agent of, like, school shooting Satan because he put one on Glee, too. He did? There was a school shooting on Glee? Yeah, there was a... Well, I mean, it was, like, a fake school shooting on Glee, like, because, uh-huh. like, the the girl with Down syndrome, Becky, the cheerleader, like, <laughs> accidentally misfired a gun and, like, sue, like, the dyke sue's office and, like, everyone thought there was a school shooter. But, like, it goes on. Uh, the episode is called Shooting Star, by the way. <laughs> I just couldn't get better. I know, and like, uh, there's like an ep- like a moment of like the blonde like cheerleader like uh, peeing herself almost in like the um, <laughs> in the bathroom, like standing on top of the toilet trying not to get found, and it's like, how did this get on Fox? It's so tasteless. <laughs> Oh god, I just I I think I like watched the first season of Glee and then just completely blocked that out. Like I just <laughs> I pretend that I never watched it. Yeah. But, yeah. <laughs> Wow. No, I mean, I think that's, like, what makes uh, Columbine such a successful act of terror is that it sent, like, those ripples through culture in which, like, you can't think of a high school narrative without thinking of a school shooting now. Like, um, yeah. and so much great art came out of it, like Gus Van Sant's Elephant. Oh, my God. I love the film so much. <laughs> Me, too. Yeah. It's so good. Yeah. Like, there, there's also, like, when you were talking about the bathroom scene in Glee, there's a bathroom scene in Elephant as well. Like, with those, yeah. like, annoying, like, middle school girl, or, like, high school, I guess, whatever. Those, like, um, plastics. <laughs> that, mm-hmm. like, group of girls. And they're, like, sitting, standing in the bathroom talking about, like, um, about their boyfriends or whatever. Like, it's right. such a good scene. It just really stays with you. Uh, one of my favorite acts of terror is... Um from uh, the Japanese Red Army, which was a communist organization um, that kind of formed after the uh, 68 and 69 riots in Tokyo. And uh, they were trying to invoke revolution in Japan. And, like, part of their organization believed in the death. Like, they were Japanese people, but they believed Mm -hmm. that, like, uh, Japanese citizens were inherently evil and like the Japanese ethnic race needed to be like cleansed off the earth so <laughs> that the indigenous Ainu people could uh take the land back and like oh, they bl- really woke yeah super woke <laughs> and uh, the best thing about them is like after they like blew up a building and like hijacked a plane and like flew to North Korea is that these Maoists like went together into a uh, forest in northern Japan and like camped out doing military training and like ideological self critique, trying wow. to uh, <laughs> trying to better themselves. And they ended up all like tying each other to posts and gutting each other and killing themselves. <laughs> and uh, it resulted in like a shootout inside of a, uh, a hotel that lasted for three days. Wow. Them. Yeah. Well, that sounds really glamorous. <laughs> I know. And they all have my favorite thing about the Japanese Red Army is they all have like these like really like proletariat, like worker aesthetics about them. And it's like all of these mm-hmm. like gruffly masculine men in like button down shirts with like unkept facial hair, like debating for their lives about Maoism. And I find it really erotic, actually. 
<laughs> wow, it's like that um, God, that Godard movie, the Chinois, whatever it's called. Mm-hmm. I've seen it. It has the same sort of vibe. <laughs> just like these people, just like debating and killing each other. It's um, so it's interesting. Yeah, well, one of the best filmmakers to come out of that is a Wakamatsu. Uh, what the fuck? I just mispronounced that so bad. <laughs> <laughs> Wakamatsu is not even a syllable in Japanese. <laughs> it's a Wakamatsu Koji, and uh, he um he was like in he was associated with the Red Army for a long time, and uh, he became really dissuade and like bitter towards it, and then spent all of his uh movie making career kind of like commenting about like how human desires like get in the way of like uh radical revolutionary action and how people mm-hmm. are just gonna fuck and suck instead of you know overthrowing the government or whatever because that's all people actually care about at the end of the day well it's like the john waters movie right this will be demented yeah. like you can't you can't fuck until we make the movie <laughs> Exactly. Again, in the way of um, radical cinema. Before we chat a little bit about that movie, I wanted to bring up, I think, what is probably the best act of terrorism ever, and uh, mm-hmm. one that has become really untrendy to talk about because there's a lot of discourse about 9 11, <laughs> and um, the discourse oh. on the left is that it wasn't that bad, it's fine, it wasn't that horrible, not that many people died. And then uh-uh. on the other side is uh, people saying that. Oh, it's like the worst thing that ever happened. And anyone who turns it into a joke is like absolutely evil. But I think what should be said about 9-11 outside of politics is that it was aesthetically the most persuasive and artistic act of terrorism ever committed. True. Absolutely. I mean, even in Europe, it's like a big thing. Like, mm-hmm. even people in Russia talk about it. <laughs> people talk about it here in Japan. Like, I uh, I work with some people who uh, remember watching the news of when the planes hit the towers. Um, but were you alive for when 9-11 happened? I was alive, yeah, but I wasn't, like, uh, conscious of what happening. I was little. <laughs> you weren't remembering anything, yeah. <laughs> no, I don't remember anything. But, like, um, when I was growing up, you had already, like... Uh, the whole airport thing had already changed. So you had to like take everything off and whatever. So it's just something I grew up with. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. <laughs> I can't even imagine being different at any point in history, but um, yeah, but people still talk about 9-11 all the time. Yeah, like my course. grandma talks about it. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. And I mean, the, the reason is obvious and like the reason why it's so aesthetically persuasive is because it created the image. Like, it created an absolute painting on history of those two buildings on fucking fire and coming apart in New York. Yeah. I mean, those photos are beautiful. <laughs> oh my God. They're, uh, I'm obsessed. Like, I could look at pictures of the two towers, like, all day. <laughs> yeah. No, absolutely. I feel and... like this might be kind of disturbing. Like, I think probably, like, half my listeners now are, like, disgusted and, like, horrified but like how can you not see like two pillars of all modernity like burning down and crumbling and like the smoke and like the skyline how could you look at that and like not be moved you know yeah i mean people are moved by like war imagery right Mm -hmm. like just looking at those like like the trenches and like you know the burning the burning cities and whatever that moves people why couldn't you know why couldn't the twin towers move people like, yeah. sure, it's horrible. A lot of people died. Yeah, that, that sucks. But 
but it's still that sucks <laughs> yeah sucks for you wow um but like looking at it you just can't help it you're just really moved by that by those photos mm-hmm. yeah i mean they are emotionally so evocative especially when you see the pictures of people like flinging themselves from the flames and um yeah. you know a lot of people give otessa moshfeg a lot of shit i don't know if you've read anything that she's written i have yeah i've read um i've read eileen and the year of rest and relaxation yeah i mean eileen to me was kind of whatever like i get it it's like oh my god a girl picks at her vagina how revolutionary but i have to say though like uh, i think i tweeted at some point as well like she's like a minority right she's like whatever arabic jewish i, I don't know but she yeah. like <laughs> writes about wasps all the time she's like obsessed with that and i really oh, respect yeah. her for it yeah like, she knows that like the weirdness of like culture like exists in the wasps mm-hmm. like she knows yeah and she really like capitalized on that i totally respect that <laughs> Yeah, and, like, she did a great story about, like, a, a man in China, like, uh, who is extremely perverted and, like, uh, sniffs mm-hmm. his fingers after scratching his ass and, like, his uh, relationship with this girl he's obsessed with. And it's, like, I cannot think of any writer right now who would be so bold as to write about Asian people that way. Yeah, I mean, she has guts. I don't think, I don't know if she has talent, but she has guts. I think that's that's enough for now. Yeah, and, I mean, that's, I I think she understood with my year of rest and relaxation which has like in the last two pages of the book it has the obnoxious bitchy friend flinging herself from the window (laughs) and the narrator like watching the tapes of the newsreels back so she can see like her friend at this glistening moment of life (laughs) i have to say i hated the ending i was just like wow that's really cheap it's like that um fuck uh movie with uh Robert Pattinson. Robert Pattinson. Yeah. When he gets fucking clobbed by the plane. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, wow. (laughs) And all of this for this. (laughs) (laughs) But um, in in that way, like, I hated the ending because I thought it was kind of, like, lazy and cheap. But there is an aesthetic element to it, sure. Yeah, what I liked about the ending was that it's, like, um... She, uh, the the speaker was celebrating her obnoxious friend for like finally like living and making a radical choice and like doing something like horrifying and like glistening and tossing mm-hmm. herself out the window and like I believe that like in that way I think we're both kind of on the same page about nine eleven and that yeah it's like this horrible dastardly evil act of extreme violence and tragedy but it like yields to these moments of beauty that i feel like still resound through culture <laughs> i mean extreme violence is beautiful like you know like gory are beautiful serial killers do are artists in a way like you can't i don't think you can really accept your, <laughs> this is gonna sound really bad but you can't really like accept your own hum- humanity and your own you know the fact that you're a human being without accepting the fact that you're capable of these awful things right and, like, seeing the extremity that people are capable of taking is, uh, mm-hmm. it's, like, a riveting human experience, which is why it is so tragic to me that, like, you know, mass terrorism has been reduced to this, like, really boring, banal, like, kind of beige-flavored nothingness. Yeah. It's, like, I can't feel anything about, like, the, you know, ma- like, the the Ariana Grande concert or, like, mm-hmm. or, like, the Vegas shooting or, like, Christchurch even because it's, like, so devoid of like that extreme element like it's just so 
like passe now now it's like so passe yeah but i think i think it has something to do with the fact that everything is boring now <laughs> it's not just terrorism yeah. that has lost all flavor just like everything has lost all flavor so it's just you know it doesn't really matter if you see another boring movie or if you see a terrorist attack on tv like it's the same thing they right. just have no spirit to them and do you think this I, is like a like a sim like symptomatic of like a of like a cultural rot that we're so bored by this like do you think it's special that like we don't like care anymore about like when terrorist acts happen i think it's both at the same time like i think yeah. i think why those like terrorist attacks in like the 90s or the early 2000s like you know like columbine or 9-11 or whatever were so good and so like provocative is because everything kind of was like mm -hmm everything like movies books pop music everything kind of produced these like very strong emotions in people and now nothing does so of course yeah. a terrorist attack wouldn't because also like good terrorist attacks kind of build off the imagery that already exists and like i don't know combines it with like you know blood and gore and all of that and makes this like beautiful work of art um that that doesn't really exist anymore so it just has nothing to sort of build you know anything off yeah it's like I mean, in the 90s it was like madonna was doing like the sex book you know like and that mm -hmm. comes up in glamorama a lot I'm, I'm sure we'll touch on it but like the extremity that even like you know pop imagery was taking you know that was thrilling and i think people were you know constantly like shocked and like revolutionized by like what was going on like before the 21st century but i can barely remember the last time like anything moved me like the sex book would or like 9-11 would no absolutely and i think it's funny because with columbine as well like the fact that so the they had planned the shooting for like a year right and mm -hmm. they called like when they were talking to each other or like writing about it in their diaries they referred to it as the nbk day the natural born killers day yeah like that movie that tarantino wrote and i don't remember who um like who directed it but it's just like the whole shooting's influenced by pop culture of the time you can't really mm -hmm. have that anymore because now yeah. even if there is a shooting it's influenced by columbine or it's influenced by whatever it's like you know when the florida school shooting happened um it's just like it was just so boring because it was just like this little guy in like a red <laughs> t-shirt <laughs> like it just it had like no aesthetic value to it yeah Exactly. And I mean, I think that John Waters is extremely, like, preeminently aware of this when he mm -hmm. made Cecil be Demented, which is this, yeah. uh, uh, I guess it was, like, like late, mid-90s when it came out. And it's about a, a group of uh, trash cinema directors and filmmakers who hijacked a bitchy actress and then forced her into uh, helping out with their terrorist film in which they uh, routinely massacre union workers and like, uh, <laughs> and, like <laughs> cast members and uh, I <laughs> too. yeah and I think it's because uh, he realized in seeing like filmmaking and like you know Forrest Gump is like a big target of the movie uh, one of the <laughs> plot points that they're making Forrest Gump 2 and they like attack the uh, uh, the filmmaking of uh, the set of that movie <laughs> And I think that he saw, like, the really banal, like, placidity sinking in. And uh, yeah. he chose to attack it with this extremely, like, campy uh, tour de force of uh, terrorist violence. Absolutely, yeah. I think it actually came out in, like, 2001 or something. It was, like, the early 2000s. Let's check. I have no idea. Um, 
I think it was because Stephen Dorff was in it and he, his moment was like the early 2000s. Oh, yeah, it was, it was 2000. It was 2000. So it was like a year before 9 11. Mm hmm. But it already has that spirit to it, mm -hmm. you know, that to like really break this like sort of, I don't know, uh, boredom and everything that was setting in already. There would have to be real terror and real violence <laughs> to make people think. Right. I think 9-11 did that. And I think that's why, I don't know, have you ever read, um, fuck, Mark Fisher's uh, Ghosts of My Life or whatever it's called? I haven't read it. I've read a little bit of... Uh what is it called? Capitalist realism. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've read a little bit of that as well, but I haven't, I'd never like finished it, but yeah, I never finished um, either. Okay. <laughs> but, but Ghost, anyway, <laughs> in Ghosts of My Life, he has this whole point where he's like talking about the fact that culture sort of stopped progressing in 2003. Mm -hmm. And I think it's kind of accurate, but there were still so many great works of art that were produced after that. But I think the reason why they were produced was because of 9-11. Yeah. Because it sort of shocked people into, back into like making art and thinking and you know living their lives and then yep. when that sort of faded away and there were more terrorist attacks people the boredom finally set in and that's when everything just went downhill yeah absolutely and i mean that's like one of the artistic achievements of 9-11 is that like it invoked like that mortality in people mm -hmm. especially like i think new yorkers who realized that like they could just die like they could just fucking get blown up by a plane and uh any successful functioning terrorist act is, is gonna you know kind of entreat that in its uh, audience but that effect absolutely. is just so lost and boring now yeah no absolutely have you seen Vox Lux by any chance oh yes I fucking love Vox Lux I love that movie so much it totally yeah. deserves an Academy Award it was so fucking good <laughs> oh no it does not deserve a single Academy Award like I don't I, you know, the Academy what? Award should never touch that masterpiece of a movie like the Fair Academy enough. Awards are below Vox Lux no that Fair. movie is so fucking good like Natalie Portman like so at high function 100% like New Jersey camp and uh, <laughs> the, oh my god and I love like, that's a great I, I actually was gonna ask if you'd seen it because um yeah. The the evolution from the Columbine-esque shooting at the beginning to, like, the, you know, religious terrorism and, like, the second act of the movie and, like, the complete, yeah. like, boredom and flatlining placidity of it and uh, just it being reduced to how is this going to be discussed in the public, you know, is just this brilliant touch. I also love that scene where 9-11 happens and then she goes into her sister's uh, hotel room and she's, like, in bed with the producer like, yes. there's just something about it, just, you know, like, the, whatever, the big, the big event and, like, the personal drama, just, like, they intertwine. It's so good. Yeah, because she's about to go, like, scream about 9-11, but then she's going to have to scream about the fact that her sister is fucking their <laughs> agent. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's just so, it's so good. And I think that's a good segue into um, what I think is one of the only remaining forms of terrorism left in the world, which is celebrity culture. yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because in the same way that you know terrorism is like this aesthetic and visual thing that you witness and then influences or changes your life if it's successful i think the only thing that's capable of doing that in the neoliberal state now is celebrities are they though are they still like they were still capable of doing it in like 2010s but are they now mm -hmm. It's a good question. Um, I don't think so, maybe. Because I mm -hmm. 
I used to really be swayed by my perception of celebrities, not necessarily what they thought, but like my relationship to their image or whatever, that definitely catered to a lot of like the way I was thinking. I immediately think of Kim Kardashian. Like I was constantly reacting to her scandals and her controversies and uh, defending her and like running up to like sing the praises (laughs) of Kim Kardashian at every instant. But, yeah. like, that's, I think, like, the extent of uh, of what celebrities do to me. Except for, like, pop singers. But that's different because it's art, you know. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I think I think celebrities were still very influential and still had all that power even, like, four years ago. Mm-hmm. I think now we're kind of, like, going to this territory where celebrities, like, the way that celebrities manufactured is very out in the open. Yeah. Like, what's the name of uh, Kamala Harris's uh, daughter? Oh, my God. Daughter? That, like, skinny, like, awful-looking bitch. Yeah, and the fact that she's, like, being made into this, like, huge model with all these contracts and, like, modeling for, like, who God, know- God knows who. It's just, mm-hmm. it destroys the illusion and yeah. also destroys the power that celebrity then holds. Because if you know how it's made, you're not interested in it anymore. It's, like, magic tricks. Like, you just don't care. Yes, and I mean, I think that one of the most prominent failures of like celebrityism or whatever now is that they all bow to the public and as like soon as like an apology is demanded mm-hmm. or like some behavior is asked of them or they need to prove something you know taylor swift is a really good case study in her constant like oh. rebranding and recreation of herself it's like they spend all their time being created by the audience instead of creating the audience and engendering feeling in them Absolutely. Yeah. And the fact that they just have to constantly be these like political agents as well just destroys any sort of artistic illusion they could possibly have about them. Because they're no longer just, you know, these beautiful things that you see on the stage or like on the screen or whatever. They like, you know, they have to be relatable. They have to be like real people. They have to tweet about their like, um, you know, health issues and whatever. Yeah. Lena Dunham does that a lot. She's just constantly like, oh, you know, I'm like, I'm in pain. I'm dying. And it's like, does anyone actually care? It's like her and like the woman of color from the good place is like constantly tweeting about their fibromyalgia. Yeah, it's like nobody really cares. Like, you haven't made anything for a while in a while. Maybe you should, you know, maybe you should do that. Like, it's just, I think in the past when celebrities were sort of more manufactured, but, you know, like those studio systems and whatever. Um, there was sort of more of a, it was like a fantasy land, right? It was these like perfect people that had all this glamour and all of these like whatever cool lives. But now it's just, I'm just like you, you know, I have health issues too. And it's like, I don't want to know that. I don't want to be like you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't want to be like you. I don't want to, I don't want to hear about it. Like, I just, I just want you to like, you know, go make cool art. Like, it's just, it really sucks. <laughs>
tricky, you know, because you always feel like you have to look a certain way or be a certain oh, way. So I've just kind of given I would up love a little to do bit, a lot you know, on caring. And to um, challenge myself yeah. with the script and just get better yeah. in general. Yeah. And uh, mm, maybe have a kid. Glamorama is a 1998 novel by the Enfant Terrible, Brett Easton Ellis, and uh, I'm a big fan of Ellis's. I have read American Psycho and Less Than Zero, so kind of the basics, but I love his podcast and I uh, Mm -hmm. really value his presence in media. Um, I'm a huge fan of his as well. I've read all of his books aside from, um, I think it's called The Informers, like a collection of short stories that he did. Oh, yeah. I'm kind of saving that for later because <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't have anything else to read, but I've read all of his novels <laughs> and um, even the book that he did a couple years back called White. I really loved it. Love his podcast. Just love him in general. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, in the spirit of Brett Easton Ellis, I think we need to take a big swig of alcohol before we start chatting about this book. So I have my new home shoe in front of me. I'm going to just, uh, here we go. Oh. Okay. I have work tomorrow, but whatever. I will die for Brett Easton Ellis on my podcasting experience. Absolutely. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, God is right. I feel that in my chest. I can't believe I saw the end of, uh, I saw the Evangelion 3.0 plus 1.0, and like now I'm just like drunk raving about terrorism. <laughs> it's a good day. Um, it's a yeah, it's a, it's a great day. Bright, glistening day. Um, yeah, so I was uh, kind of interested in this novel because I loved American Psycho when I read it last year. <laughs> and Anna Katchian of Red Scare has kind of introduced uh, Glamorama as like the uh, body fascist late 90s version of American Psycho, which is kind of uh, American Psycho is like more like a take about like the late 80s and like that cultural moment, whereas this yeah. feels distinctly more 90s. It does. Yeah, it has that like late 90s, like minimalist vibe, very Calvin Klein. But um, I also think it's very modern and contemporary as well. Like it oh, yeah. feels very, very um, of the moment. Well, the reason I paired it with the concept of terrorism is because the novel follows a um, A, B list celebrity, like not really <laughs> like one of the, the majors, but certainly like a prominent name, uh, Victor Ward, who uh, begins the novel merely as just a model turned actor flitting around New York uh, before he... Uh, is wrapped up in a scheme of uh, terrorism led by a ring of celebrities. And uh, the novel is sort of about his relationship to fame and celebrity as well as uh, the uh, cultural experience of celebrities and terrorism. Um, Yeah, I mean, Victor Ward was a character in Rules of Attraction as well. Right. And he was called Victor Johnson back then. <laughs> yeah. But um, so he's like a character that Bryson Ellis had written about before. And I mean, he's uh, very um, fascinating. Now, what attracted you to Glamorama when you read it? Because I think you said it's your favorite Ellis, right? It is. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love American Psycho and I love Lesson Zero, but Glamorama is, has like a special you know, place in my heart because I think... It's just, I've always been attracted to the whole model scene of the 90s, like Kate Moss yeah. and like Naomi Campbell and all that. And I think all girls kind of are. 
like it's like a typical right. thing to be into like how can you not love you know beautiful successful women that are successful because of their looks but I think it's just so as, as I said it's very contemporary and it sort of touches on that whole like celebrity culture and just that element of like your name being everything that's especially sort of you know valid now that influencers are a thing and not that your name is basically everything that you have yeah absolutely everything this book has to say has turned out to be completely right because Mm -hmm. the the theme of like a celebrity kind of like flitting in between and out of their identity and one of like the leading um concepts of the of the book is if victor ward is actually just like a over like a, a cl- not not necessarily like a literal clone, but like a, a shadow or like a mirror image of a more successful celebrity, or um, if someone else has like taken his role by the end of the book, and now it might almost like seem like an easy target because it's just so obviously true. But the fact yeah. that it was like written in the you know late nineties and throughout the decade and turned out to be so preeminently right about that concept kind of uh, doesn't make it passe to me, but actually just like showcases it as like a novel of complete fact. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think Bryson also doesn't really talk about it at all because I think he was really high and out of it when he wrote it. So he just kind <laughs> of ignores it. Like he always talks about American Psycho, but Glamorama is just kind of like, you know, swept under the rug. But I think it's, he really felt something when he wrote it and whatever feeling it was that he had was completely right I think it was evident with like um JFK Jr and that whole thing that your name was going to be everything in the 21st century and it turned out to be Mm -hmm. true yeah absolutely and uh I think like the one of this book is really unpopular like a lot of people hate Mm -hmm. this novel and I mean a lot of people hate anything that Ellis writes especially like American Psycho but even for people who've read his work, this often proves to be, like, not a hit with them. And I think it's because of, like, the first 200 pages, which is basically the most comprehensive image of celebrity ever put to <laughs> literature of yeah. this character, Victor, like, flitting between 500 social scenes and a thousand different celebrity names um, as he like, has, like, grotesque, soulless sex with a variety of... Uh, of his uh, women and it (laughs) might read as like repetitive or like kind of boring to some people. But if you like learn to read it where you kind of just like let it breeze through you, I think it's basically like a perfect summation of that culture. Absolutely. I mean, I grew up watching America's Next Top Model. So that Mm -hmm. really, (laughs) it seems very, um, that was like a comfortable thing for me to read, but the whole, it is very ugly, like the whole, the, the, the fact that celebrity doesn't really have any value to it and the fact that it's all kind of manufactured. I mean, I think he depicts it really well, that it's just very mm-hmm. surface level and it's just these people that don't actually have anything to say, but pretend that they do. It sounds very cliche, but yeah. No, it sounds cliche, but the, the fact of the matter is we're talking about a book that's like uh, like 23 years old now and it said mm-hmm. all of these things like before Instagram existed or like before like Britney Spears had like really entered her heyday, you know, mm-hmm. like the idea of a celebrity in the way that um, Ellis writes them was foreign, basically. That's true. Yeah. And I think he, he kind of touched on that in American Psycho as well with all these like models that they have like lunches and dinners with and whatever. It just being completely surface level, but Glamorama kind of like really 
yeah, it depicts it just really, really well. Yeah, and I think one of the things that he's really right about is that he, I mean, throughout his career, especially in American Psycho and Glamorama, is that uh, he brings up Madonna all the fucking time because <laughs> she was, like, one of the only, like, glistening images who is, like, capable of embodying, like, this... Uh, uh, foreboding, frightening force that was coming over culture. And I love that Victor yeah. was supposed to be in the sex book and had his like image cut from it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He mentioned this, he mentioned this a couple of times in the book, right? It's like, oh yeah, it was like in the outtakes of the book. It's so like, I don't know. I've always wanted to get that book, but it's like 200 pounds on eBay. So oh, yeah. <laughs> I really am. I'm really considering it though. <laughs> I've read a PDF of it, so I have one on my computer, and it is like the most oh. gorgeous, like beautifully laid out book. It's like one of my favorites. I I love erotica, and I love the the sex book, and I think mm-hmm. that like Brett Easton Ellis is one of the few people who's right about Madonna and recognizing her as like a goddess of pop culture who like shifted everything. I mean, I love erotica. I think it's my favorite Madonna album. Me too. Ever. I love the I love the videos. I just love all of that like bad girl with that like whole yes. vibe. It's so good. But um I know Camille Paglia didn't really like the book. So <laughs> that's the only thing that's kind of like, you know Wait, Paglia didn't like Glamorama? No, no, no. She didn't like the sex book that Madonna did. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I was I was like, what does she have to say about Brad Easton Ellis? She the doesn't cultural know. crossover I don't need. I don't <laughs> need to hear what she thinks for once. <laughs> apparently she didn't like the sex book which is disappointing it's the only thing that's like really holding me from getting it but i totally like waste 200 pounds on it no because polya like actually like kind of uh flits between having it out for madonna and like revering her as like the ultimate female image and uh Mm -hmm. i didn't read any of her commentary where she kind of like praises madonna's cultural force before i had like read like her pithy takes about the sex book and at first i was like i don't need to read sexual persona because she didn't like the sex book (laughs) oh (laughs) but then i did and i loved it so it's fine (laughs) i I mean i I guess i'm glad that i found out about kumo poly before i found out about you know the sex book and all of that but um yeah i i just i love erotica i think it's a great album i love all the videos i think madonna is like one of the most beautiful women who ever exist <laughs> oh my god i know you're woke she's based look at you go yeah she's so beautiful and just so like sexual and just charged with all of that energy you can't yeah. help but love her and i'm really happy that Brace and Ellis recognizes it I know it takes a specific sort of faggot to recognize it. Like straight men have this bizarre aversion to Madonna where like Mm -hmm. they feel like confronted by the sexuality. And I think that like, that's a newer quality. Like I think older straight guys actually like were like horned up, like seeing like Mm -hmm. stuff about what she was doing and like just like creating the conversation of the sex book, like actually like made so much confrontational culture. Like that was an act of terrorism for sure. Yeah, no, definitely. I think it has something to do with the fact that sexuality now is very, like, puritanical, and it's that it's all about victimhood. Like, you have to pretend that you hate it. And so men are really not into the idea of a woman being into it as well. Yeah. (laughs) Like, eating ass, like, being photographed eating ass. Like, like, (laughs) they can't believe it. Models and, like, the whole thing that Madonna had going for her. Like, I love the stories of her, like, picking up, like, random guys in the street in New York in her, like, huge uh, car and whatever and just, like, having them. (laughs) Oh, yeah, like, the Puerto Rican 16-year-old. Yeah, it's 
just yeah a great woman <laughs> yeah absolutely that's something else that i love about um glamorama is that the depiction of sex is uh about as visceral and violent as i, I mean because the book is like structured in the way that it has like these long sequences of like summing up who's at the party and like what everyone's drinking and like what music is playing and it's like abba and it's like lou reed <laughs> but then it breaks into these horrifying eruptions of like sex and violence and Ellis like writes the sex scenes in the same way he does like the scenes of uh, terrorism where plane accidents and bombings are like ripping people's bodies apart and impaling yeah. them with metal. Yeah. No, absolutely. I think the first thing that really stood out to me were the sex scenes, especially like the threesome that um Yes, yes, I love the threesome. It's so it's so good. Like Jamie Fields and Bobby was Bobby his name? Yeah, Bobby's the, the ringleader of the terrorist yeah, group. Yeah, like, it's such a good sex scene. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, that's something else I love about the book is, like, the encroaching vampire villainy of homosexuality just constantly hovering over the novel. Yeah, and it's, like, uh, the, the fact that everyone thinks that he's kind of dating, um, fuck, who is he dating? Keanu Reeves? No. Keanu Reeves is one of them. Yeah. There's multiple, but Keanu Reeves is one yeah. of them. Yeah. <laughs> one of them as well, I think, where they're like constantly linking him to these like male celebrities. But it's okay. Like, you know, like Victor's just gay. He's just having his little thing. <laughs> yeah. It's like every single time that homosexuality like, homosexuality like pops up in the book, it's like as this like shadowy, horrifying like villainy that's like sinking in. And it's like these like gay men leering at Victor on like the boat. Um, and yeah. then it ultimately, like, flowers into that really disturbing threesome with Bobby where he gets, like, ass-fucked by Bobby. And it's, like, <laughs> so much description of, like, Bobby asking to see Victor's asshole and, like, asking Victor to move his legs so, like, he can reveal his rectum more. <laughs> yeah, Jamie feels just kind of, like, sitting there and just encouraging the whole thing, like, really... <laughs> getting them um, into it no it's such a yeah the, the descriptions of violence and descriptions of the of the sex scenes are very similar that's true yeah and speaking of like encroaching villainy in it i one of the things i find really endearing about this book is that like it um misdiagnosed like the uh approaching horde as a japanese people <laughs> instead of chinese people <laughs> Yes, yeah, like uh, Sam Ho or whatever his name is. No, no, he was uh -huh. Korean. He was Korean. He's Korean, yeah. He's yeah. Korean. But, like, throughout the book, like, Brett Easton Ellis just cannot help himself from, like, being, like, there was a Japanese, like, tourist in the like in the corner taking pictures. Like, <laughs> there was a Japanese man at the pool. There's a Japanese man at the table. And, like, the, it turns out that, like, the Japanese are, like, influencing the uh, government. And it's, like, why uh, Victor gets wrapped up in this terrorism stuff in the first place. It's, like, it's very cute that he thought it would be Japanese <laughs> people and not Chinese. <laughs> yeah, but it's, I, I guess it makes sense because the 90s had a lot of Japanese influence. Like, those Liliana oh, yeah. where the models are, like, dressed up in, like, you know, Japanese traditional clothing and whatever. Makes sense. Yeah, no, it, it made sense at the time. I mean, like, he, he was, like, right at the moment, but unfortunately he didn't have the pre-sight to see what China had in store. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I like the whole government subplot as well because, um, well, I mean, as I mentioned before, like, I went to international schools and stuff, and a lot of the kids that I went to school with were, like, um, you know, their parents were, like, ambassadors or, like, um, whatever, like, um, what do you call them? <laughs> 
whatever government people that were like in the country. government people yeah government <laughs> people that were in a country for a couple of years just like on a contract and whatever so the whole vibe of everything just being a little bit secret and a little bit like you know come like whatever it's like a conspiracy um i vibe with that yeah <laughs> and that's something else that's uh really a major element at play here is that like the conspiracy and like the what's going on behind the scenes is like so stupid and <laughs> I, brett Easton ellis knows it and he like makes sure to like make a big joke about it but like to an untrained eye like reading the switch from the first part of the novel to like the rest of it where yeah. it is kind of like this espionage tinted <laughs> Uh, like ridiculous you know terrorism plot it's like you would never be able to read it unless you were like kind of like aware of the joke yeah no that's absolutely true but that was that's exactly what makes the novel so good it's so self-aware and it's so like Mm -hmm. satirical in its nature it's just it's exactly what makes it the best that he's ever written Yeah, and I mean, there's a lot of, like, right-wing cultural critics who, like, decry postmodernism and, like, say Mm -hmm. that David Foster Wallace is, like, the the absolute most evil person in the world and, like, (laughs) all of his writing is shit and, like, postmodernism is, like, leading us into, you know, like, authoritarian states or whatever. But any person who says that has clearly not read any Brett Easton Ellis because he does postmodernism in, like, the best, most crucial and shocking way. That's true, yeah. But I don't think he even does it intentionally. Like, I don't, like, listening to his podcast and just, like, watching his interviews and whatever, I don't think he really realized what it is that he was doing. Mm-hmm. He's either so incredibly good at the whole media thing that he just fakes his own cluelessness, or he actually didn't realize what it is that he was saying. But I think it's true yeah. for a lot of artists. Like, a lot of artists kind of do it intuitively and they don't really realize what it is that they're saying until it's, like, you know, a couple of years whatever and then they're like oh wait <laughs> i was actually right <laughs> yeah well i think that's what makes brett easton ellis a powerful writer is that so much of his literature or like these eruptions of his repression and like things that he doesn't like want to say but he like knows to be true about himself and so when he like writes that debaucherous evil threesome scene and like this like <laughs> leering gayness it's like all kind of indicative of uh you know I think things that he's felt and experienced and it bursts out in the text. It's true. Yeah. I mean, it's all very, it is very intuitive. It's just kind of what he was going through and like living through at the time. I think I watched an interview of his once where he was talking about Glamorama and he talked about how he just wanted to depict that whole like model glamour of 90s where the models were like the biggest celebrities and they had all the power and all like, you know, the attention on them. But I think he also sort of intuitively realized that the world was going to change very soon Mm -hmm. and sort of intuitively guessed what it was going to be. And terrorism was his answer, which is interesting. Yeah. And I mean, the scale that he depicts terrorism in this book seems shocking for when the book was published. But now, like, as we were talking about in the first part of the episode, it's like so like whatever like it's just so whatever to us like yeah. but he he kind of predicted that it would just be happening at this like rate and scale and at this extreme personal violence um and i i find it breathtaking that he was able to realize it so early and depict it in such flawless detail i mean yeah i mean the book was written way before columbine and i mean definitely way before 9-11 and all of those other terrorist attacks in the early 2000s i mean mm-hmm. it's just I mean, I wasn't alive back then. 
<laughs> I don't really know what the atmosphere was like, but I'm guessing the fact that he was able to realize it so early was that everything was kind of leading up to it, right? That like all right. the cultural and all like whatever, all the moments were leading up to this like huge explosion. Yeah, and I mean, there's definitely something to be said about the fact that the book is about celebrities doing terrorism. It's not like Victor Ward gets, like, wrapped up into, like, an Islamic group or something. <laughs> it's like he gets washed up into a group of, like, ex-models and, like, actresses and people who are, like, just famous enough to be recognized and, like, constantly seen. Mm-hmm. Um, and those are the people who are, like, imparting this violence on everyone. I mean, I think it's kind of, maybe it's, like, really on the nose, but the whole thing with, like, celebrities being sort of, like, worship, like, gods, I think that's kind of, like, a comment on that as well. The fact that celebrities mm-hmm. are these, like, religious figures now that everyone, that everyone worships and depicts as gods. I mean, Polly has, like, a whole thing in it as well, but it's just, that, like, the fact that celebrities are, it's like, celebrity culture is almost religious in its nature. And yeah. it's sort of, they're doing these acts for attention (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that's kind of like why i think that like celebrityism as like a thing is sort of an act of terrorism like i said earlier it's because it's like forcing i mean successful celebrities anyway like successful celebrity culture is like forcing its image and its presence on the audience and uh terrorism does the same thing so i think that ellis kind of imagined like the same impulse in both of them I mean, yeah, um, absolutely. And the whole thing that started, I kind of really like the um, the element in the book that's all about like how he's filming a movie when all of these things happen to him. It feels like- very- I can't believe we haven't even brought that up yet. Yeah, it's like a very like reality TV thing, right? And like the fact that he wrote about it way before, you know, way before the Kardashians, way before um, like The Simple Life and Paris all Paris Hilton, yeah. Yeah, like just like the whole element of like reality TV and unscripted movies. Like it's also very Warhol in its nature, I feel like. Right. Um, because that element of the of the book is that like it constantly is like reframing itself as like being a set of a script being Mm -hmm. filmed in some capacity and so characters are like constantly like redoing scenes or like calling attention to the director in the room or like talking about how a line didn't work or about how the lighting is off or how something is a set and something isn't and you know there's that impulse in American Psycho towards the end as well and even though it's not like a filmic set it's like about the oh is this real or is it not but I find it much more compelling here than in American Psycho I mean absolutely yeah because it's way more emotional almost like in American Psycho he's so like psychopathic and completely detached that you don't really get any emotions from him besides like fear and anger while it's here Victor is like really going through it and he's scared and he's terrified and he's really anxious and he doesn't really know what's happening to him and he's just constantly like forgetting his lines (laughs) he doesn't know (laughs) it's in the script or not and it's just like this element of like complete you know forgetfulness (laughs) of the novel (laughs) Yeah, because he's, like, crying a lot, like, in the mm-hmm. last, like, third of the book. He's, like, breaking down and, like, laying on the floor. Yeah. And, like, the whole one, Sam Ho gets killed by Bobby and the rest of the group. He completely breaks down and he's just, like, crying. I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go to my mom or whatever. Just, like, you really, you really get his feelings. Yeah. 
And the book ends with um, like him like at the maximum like apex point of that feeling where he like has no where else to go. Like his lines are fucked up. Like the movie shoot is like called off, and like he's alone in his being, like about to be blown up. And it's he's like gaunt and skinny, and like all of his muscles are gone. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> the last like five pages of the book are terrifying. They are, yeah. And like when he calls his sister and he's like, oh, I'm like, you know, I'm here. I've been like kidnapped or whatever. I don't know what to do. And the sister's like, I'm going to see you tomorrow for lunch. Like, go away. Yeah. And then it's revealed that like the, because the book is divided into like six like portions, like parts, mm-hmm. I would guess. And uh, they count down. Like they all are counting down. And then they like blow up in like some act of terrorism or sex or like a public failure. Um, but then the fifth part sees this, like, reformed Victor, like, as, like, uh, this public, like, he's, like, the, like, the apology tour celebrity who's, like, just gone off of, like, Jim and Jimmy Fallon or whatever and is, like, now, like, the reformed boy. He's, like, he's so sharp and, like, he has a new image and it's, like, kind of hippie-esque, which is so telling. It's very, like, Kim Kardashian's, like, going to law school and, like... <laughs> <laughs> Political thing. <laughs> yeah, he's going to law school just like Cam. How did Brett Easton Ellis know this was gonna happen? He just needs some celebrity at some point. I'm gonna see what it's so fucking good. Yeah. I think actually one of my favorite parts in White, his like nonfiction book that he wrote a couple of years back, is when he talks about Kanye and about how when Kanye wasn't going insane and he was like institutionalized and everyone was talking about how Kanye had completely like, you know. Uh, lost it and he's like oh I was supposed to have a meeting with Kanye and he sounded completely fine (laughs) 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 he talks about how like the whole media thing was like completely manufactured you can clearly see it in this novel as well where he's just like you know it's fake (laughs) yeah because I mean like uh in the very beginning of the book like Victor gets canceled basically for cheating on his girlfriend and like <laughs> he thinks it's like the end of his entire life and like that's one where he like g- goes on the boat and like takes his espionage job <laughs> and, like, the like, whole boat portion was so like serialist to me because I like why would he go on a boat why, why couldn't he just like take a plane <laughs> oh the boat section is fucking bizarre because it like yeah. it distills all of the elements of the p- first part of the novel into this like really blank and weird and uncomfortable like simulacrum of what we just saw and mm-hmm. i when i was reading it, i could not believe it i was like this yacht sequence like <laughs> it's like 40 pages yeah no like the whole like what was her name like the model that like approaches him marina or whatever but then just completely- oh yeah marina with the tattoo who gets like extracts his semen from him like and then like gets killed yeah, it's just such a, yeah, it's such an insane sequence. <laughs> and, like, that couple that knows his dad, and they're just, like, having dinner together, and then the photo is all fake, and, yeah. I think he kind of, like, predicted deep fakes as well. The whole element yes. of, like, the footage being completely faked and simulated, I just love it. Yeah, because, I mean, that's, like, so much of the content is, like, Victor isn't sure, like, what... He's, like, on Clonopin, so he can't even remember, like, what he was doing or what he, like, wasn't doing. And so, I swear to God, like, 20% of this book is people talking to Victor about stuff that he's done and then him refuting it. He's like, I wasn't in New York last week. I didn't go to the Calvin Klein show. <laughs> I didn't do that. 
Yeah. I was at the Armani show. Excuse me. <laughs> oh yeah, where he gets his girlfriend pregnant or doesn't get her pregnant. And he's like, I wasn't there. It wasn't me. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever, because she ends up dead on the bathroom floor after like vomiting <laughs> out her spleen, basically. Oh yeah, that's uh that's a very gruesome <laughs> sequence. There's something else that I think is a good tie to terrorism is like the confetti in the book. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Because yeah, like basically like Victor's always like arriving at scenes that already has like confetti on the floor. And like the idea of confetti is that like you watch it come down, like on New Year's or whatever, like some party, and it's like, oh, like we're celebrating. Here is these beautiful like little slits of paper like falling to the ground. Yeah. But whenever it's in the book and Victor is coming across it, it's, like, already there. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's also kind of, like, creates these, I don't know, this feeling of the fact that he, like, he has, like, a body double, right? He has, like, a person who looks exactly like yeah. him that goes to all of these events, so it kind of creates this feeling of him constantly missing all the action. Yeah. <laughs> like, his body double was there, but he just wasn't. <laughs> he just constantly arrives late. Yeah, which is, like, the exact image of the celebrity now is, like, they weren't actually there. Like, they were just there after the fact. Yeah, like, the whole AC thing with her, like, not being there. (laughs) 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 The moment when it happened. Or, like, speaking of, like, terrorist attacks, that guy, what's his name? Like, the one who was um, supposedly at the school when the Florida school shooting happened, but he wasn't really Mm -hmm. there. And now he's, like, starting a pillow company or whatever. Oh, God. Okay, people started tweeting about the pillow stuff, and I like, I didn't even know where to begin. I was like, pillows? And then there was, like, anti-fascist pillows? It's so fucking funny. I just, like, I can't. It's exactly the same as, like, uh, Alison Poole in this book, who also, like, got, like, fucking, like, murdered by Patrick Bateman in American Psycho, who is uh, just alive here. And, uh... <laughs> Her new cause is PETA. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there are like a bunch of girls in this book, right? That have been apparently been murdered or like killed in his other books. Like um, Lauren Hind as well. Like she died at the end of Girls of Attraction, supposedly. Like I don't think it's actually in the book. I read it a while back, but I don't think she actually dies in the book. But it's kind of implied that she does. And in this book, it's Mm -hmm. confirmed. So it's like all these women that are not actually the women that they're supposed to be. Yeah. Which is, like, a, a very um, interesting <laughs> element. What, what do you think about Brett Easton Ellis's, like, constant, like, revocation of, like, characters and, like, bringing figures back to, like, haunt and reappear in, his in like, his books? I think it's a really interesting thing to do, especially considering that all of his novels are kind of dedicated to a very particular point in time. Like, Lesson mm-hmm. Zero is, like, a very late 70s, early 80s kind of novel. The sort of, like, you yeah. know, like, play as it lays, like, boredom in LA kind of thing and then right. and then American Psycho is very like mid to late 80s New York and Lesson Zero um I'm sorry Glamorama is like very late 90s New York as well and like the, like the fashion scene in general I think it's interesting to like see how these characters evolve throughout the decades in American history yeah. They're very like volatile and very um I don't know <laughs> cultural <laughs> Yeah, you get to see them, like, refract against themselves and, like, see, like, how they get, like, spliced up and, like, changed by the cultural element. And I think that's one of, the like, the leading themes of all of his literature is, like, the enormous force of culture, like, crushing and changing the helpless individual inside of it. I mean, absolutely, yeah. And I think 
Lunar Park, especially where he, have you read it? No, I have a copy of it that I've owned for three years and I brought with me to Japan, but it's like, I want to read like all of his earlier stuff first before I read it. Yeah, that ma- that makes sense. But Luna Park is like he's the main character of the novel, and it's like very very much him just trying to deal with the fact that the world has changed so much that he doesn't really see himself in it anymore. And mm-hmm. I think it's kind of very it kind of explains the fact that he hasn't really written a novel in like ten years by this point. I think yeah. it's really hard for anyone to do anything creative in the twenty first century, like you know twenty twenties in general, just because everything is so nostalgic. That American Psycho is still popular, but the author of American Psycho who's still alive can't even really do anything anymore. Like, it's a really sad thing to come to terms with, but it's true. Yeah, and it's the same reason why terrorism has, like, no emotional effect anymore is because, you know, there's uh, so many, like, much more interesting, like, glittering images from the past and, like, these, you know, fascinating cultural forces that we've already witnessed. And when we just, like, look back at them, they mean nothing. And you can't create something new without having to evoke, like, whatever happened before in that vein. I mean, absolutely. Like, all the school shootings of the recent years have been sort of, like been in like they just all intended to recreate the whole columbine effect by just literally like you know sort of like fashioning themselves after the two killers and just like doing the whole like graphic t-shirt huge slogan slogan kind of thing but it just doesn't work because there's nothing to build off of and it's just yeah like islamic terrorists can't even do anything anymore I mean, absolutely. Yeah, they can't. it just doesn't work. Like ISIS yeah, like Hollebeck was like so concerned that like like that France was going to be like seized and like turned into like as an like an Islamic state. And I was like, yeah. I understand like his nervousness, but like it wasn't gonna happen because there's no yeah. power to terrorism anymore. It's just a nuisance. If it was ever gonna happen, it was gonna happen in the early two thousands, not now. Like it just doesn't have any power anymore. Like ISIS was still a big thing in the early two thousand tens, but then it just sort of faded in a couple years and it was just kind of like gone and now is this still a thing? Like does it still exist? I have no idea. Maybe it does, and we're just, like, so stupid that we, like, have no idea. <laughs> like, yeah, in, like, five years' time, we're going to be, like, in, like, full, like, Islamic <laughs> garb, ready to go with our copies of the Quran. I like Islam, by the way. I think it's a cool religion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, at least there would be still something to, like, rebel against. Nothing now is there's, like, just nothing. Um, but I think, like, I don't know. I think the fact that he's, like, recycling his characters sort of also just implies the fact that he's feeling nostalgic as well the fact that he's just like really earning for that i mean he got like he became really famous when he was like 21 right like less than zero yeah. he was like 21 i can't even imagine what it was must feel like to be that young and have that whole like cultural force behind you mm-hmm. and so of course he's feeling nostalgic even by like 1999 he's had like an amazing career he became like a famous writer when he was in his early 20s yeah, and now here we are. And I mean, to to be such a cultural force and to even, like, bring it back to Madonna, like, you know, she was really young, too, when, like, she released her self-titled album and became, like, mm-hmm. instantly the superstar and goddess of America. It's, like, you watch, like, 30 years go by and, like, you look at the culture that has, like, shriveled and, like, began to unravel beneath you. And it's, like, what do you do now? And the answer for Bryce and Ellis is to start a fucking podcast. Which makes sense. Like, weirdly makes a lot of sense for him to start a podcast. Yeah. 
kind of did it earlier than anyone, right? He like started his in like 2014 and then he kind of took a break and then he came back to it. But it's just, it's sort of really sad the fact that he, like one of the best writers of his generation can't come up with a good enough idea to write a novel on. Like it just makes me really depressed. You're like, where are we going to go from here? Yeah, and like the fact that he was like, his whole dream was like to have a film career, right? Like he wanted to be like a film director, screenwriter type, and he just never, he was never really able to realize it. And that's sad too. Like that movie that he did with Lindsay Lohan and Paul Schrader. Oh, The Canyons. Yeah, it was um, <laughs> questionable at best. Well, I saw it once when I was in college and I didn't like it, but I think I might actually like it more if I gave it another shot. Mm -hmm. I think I like the whole, like, <laughs> my mom was really into, like, erotic thrillers when I was growing up. And oh, my great. Mom, That's amazing. Yeah, my mom doesn't have, like, a concept of age in general. She's just, like, she yeah. showed me kids with Chloe Semini, like, kids 1995 when I was, like, 12. And it just <laughs> for the rest of my life. <laughs> and she just showed me, like, Basic Instinct and all of these movies when I was really young. So it just, like, really shaped my perception of the world. Yeah. And she just, like, I don't know, like, the fact that Canyons has that whole, like, sexual thriller element to it seems, mm -hmm. like, it makes it really endearing to me, but, and Lindsay Lohan is great in it, but it's just so, like, <laughs> the lighting and the camera angles just feels so, like, pornographic, awkward, like, not in a good way. Oh, that sounds amazing to me. I love awkwardness and I love pornography, so. <laughs> <laughs> I have to really go back to it. I can barely remember anything that happened. I love like early 80s porno movies like those were great <laughs> yeah but I think there's just something about the, the lighting that they use in like contemporary porno movies and like canyons as well that is just so like I don't know it's just like you know that like school lighting that is yeah. just like, very, no, it's, it's like it's very like vasectomy it's like very <laughs> like medical procedural like um yeah. and I talked about this with a uh, Christian on my gay porn episode but like so much of it is like overproduced and like unreal that like any actual sexuality is just completely obliterated under the bright school lights absolutely it seems almost medical <laughs> it's like i'm gonna you know <laughs> i'm gonna fuck you but it's gonna be really like experimental and medical like it doesn't actually have any sexuality to it and that's sort of like the vibe that i got from canyons maybe i should rewatch it but i just like i had like a very mixed feeling about it when i first saw it what all goes back to, you know, Glamorama, because those sex scenes are, like, the most impassionate, like, just description of disgusting, rotted anal detail to ever be put on page. That is, that is absolutely true. And the fact that that, like, threesome follows, like, the 50 pages that describes the, the murder of some hoe, like, the, the whole sequence of events. <laughs> <laughs> and if you know Brett Easton Ellis who was able to uh, surmount all culture and predict the state of terrorism and like uh, celebrity boredom if he can't write like a novel like what are the terrorists gonna do now like what's like, what do we have left no exactly yeah like if he can't write a novel why is it so surprising that no one else can do anything not even the terrorists are good enough at it